everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Perrat about The Swooping Magpie, a novel set in late 1960s and early 1970s Australia. In November 1969, Lindsay Townsend shares the concerns of most 16-year-old girls, cool clothes, hot boys, and the need to finish high school so she can get on with her life. Fortunately for her, Lindsay is a good student who never has to study for exams, a talent that frees her to devote her time to those other pursuits. She's pretty and popular, but what she doesn't tell her friends is the truth about her life at home. And it's that unspoken truth that leads Lindsay into trouble, as we learn from the first page. A sheaf of needles jabbing my face, one arm, wakes me. I force open my eyes, lids so heavy they just want to drop closed again, struggle up from where I'm lying. Where am I lying? I go to rub away the needle stings, but my left arm is dead. What's happened to me? Where am I? Too sleepy to keep my eyes open, I surrender, plunge into darkness again. A whisper tells me it's not needles spiking my arm, but something wet. Rain, perhaps? I strain against lead-weight eyelids and see that, yes, it is rain. Tepid rivulets snaking through a cracked open window. What window? Beyond the cigarette smoke fog, I smell leather, the scent of car upholstery cleaner, and I know I am sprawled across the back seat of my father's BMW. What the hell am I doing in Dad's car? I fumble with the handle, manage to shut the window before my numb hand flops back into my lap. Rain pelts the car in rhythm to the swish-swash of full-blast windscreen wipers. Through foggy, ghost-gray air, the wind flings about the eucalyptus trees and ripped from their roots, bottle-brush fragments somersault across the road like blood-clotted rags. What's wrong with me? Why do I just want to sleep? Something sways me, a gentle but definite side-to-side rocking. Oh yes, it must be the storm swaying Dad's car. I squint through the cigarette smoke at my parents, both puffing on a craven A. It must be Dad driving. My foggy brain knows that, at least. Since my mother doesn't drive, who else would it be? Hands red-blotched, white-knuckled, tight on the wheel. Hair greased down with burl cream, not a single wayward strand and my mother, sitting rigid as a ruler, as far from him as possible, almost hugging the window. I catch a whiff of her perfume, can't recall the name of that stink of half-dead roses. And now, please join me in welcoming Lisa Perrat. Hi, Lisa. It's great to talk with you again. Hi, Carolyn. It's lovely to speak with you, too. When I interviewed you back in 2015, you were working on a novel about 14th century France, Uh, which is a long way from 1960s, 70s Australia. So readers can find that prior interview by searching for your name on the New Books Network site. But what made you decide to switch your focus in terms of time and place? Well, I really enjoyed writing the French historical novels. But after the third one, uh, Blood Rose Angel, I felt that if I wrote any more of that series, that they might end up too similar. Uh, also, I felt I needed a change of place and time, so as to kind of refresh my mind and my writing. Uh, and so the obvious place to write a story about was the time and place where I grew up in Australia. 
therefore, we have uh, already two of uh, an Australian trilogy set in the 70s. It's, it, you know, it was just really nice to have a change. I think, uh, you know, you can get stuck in one era and as much as you enjoy it, it, it does you good and your writing uh, good to, to have a change, I think. A bit of a refresher. So the first of the Australian novels is The Silent Kookaburra, which appeared in 2016. Could you tell us a bit about that book before we get into the new one? Okay, well, it's basically a dark psychological drama. It delves into the heart of some very bleak family secrets. And it's all set against a backdrop of the social changes of 1970s Australia. Uh, without going too much into the story, it really is uh, about a, a dysfunctional family who uh, have a dis very dysfunctional daughter and um, a lot of problems are, are created due to this. But it is really a reflection of what was happening socially uh, during that time in Australia with the, um, the women's uh, liberation movement and feminism, uh, we're you know really right on the cusp of that. So uh, it, it kind of um, is a little bit of a social statement as well, I guess. Both the Silent Kookaburra and the Swoopy Magpie are set in Wollongong, which you mentioned is your hometown. For people who think of Australia as Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra, what do they need to know about Wollongong, both then and now? Okay, so Wollongong is a beachside town. It's about an hour south of Sydney, around three hours from Canberra, and a long, long way from Melbourne, about a thousand kilometres. Uh, so I grew up there in the 60s and 70s, and back then it was mainly a blue-collar industrial type of place. The biggest steelworks in Australia is located there, and that was where all the men worked. It, it was really a very working-class place with many migrants who obviously came for the jobs uh, starting from the post-war years. Uh, and today it has a very different place. Uh, the multicultural aspect still flows very strongly, though, but it's kind of more in the form of restaurants, films, traditional practices, that kind of thing, which makes it a really diverse and interesting place. Uh, more and more Sydney-siders are living there, attracted by the lower property prices, which of course have now soared. And it's a really easy train trip to Sydney and back for work. Uh, also, the, the beachfront and the town centre have been modernised and it's a really pretty place these days. And it still has the best beaches around. That's good to know if I ever get to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what drew you to the story that became the swooping magpie? Um, well, I think... Initially, it was the large number of school friends who I had who were adopted. Though I didn't think that was strange at the time. It was only later when I thought back, like, everybody was adopted. Why, why was that? And then uh, this big adoption scandal of the, between the 50s and the 70s was exposed. And the then Prime Minister even made a public apology for it. So that got me thinking more deeply about this situation, what had happened, why, who was involved. And the more people I spoke to, the more I realised how just prevalent this practice was and the terrible tragedies suffered by both mothers and children. 
and it became something I felt I had to write about. As I indicated in the introduction, the central character of the book is Lindsay Townsend. Um, the passage I read actually takes place about six months after the book opens, that is, after the earliest scenes in terms of time, even though that's the first scene in the book. So tell us who Lindsay is, that is, where her character is in November 1969. Oh, okay. Poor Lindsay. At the beginning, she's she's very smart she's vain she's beautiful 15 year old who like most girls of that age are pretty obsessed with boys and clothes and appearances she's also the schoolyard bully though and uh what we don't realize at first is the suffering that she suffers at home from an abusive father and her submissive mother so she's there yearning for love and attention and she doesn't find it at home, which makes her search elsewhere. And finally, when she finds it in the arms of one of her school teachers, she believes her life is about to change, which it certainly does, but uh, sadly not the way she thinks it will. Uh, and she, you know, goes through lots of changes during the throughout the story, and hopefully by the end of it, she be, becomes a likable character, because she certainly is not at the beginning of the story. <laughs> and who is John Hallowell, who has Lindsay's and her friend Vicky's full attention? Oh, he's their high school physical education teacher. This really sexy guy that all the girls girls swoon over. He's a champion swimmer too and a surfer and pretty hot. So, and obviously he's young and, you know, all the girls just are chasing after him, all the high school girls. So I think most 16-year-old girls have a best female friend and Vicky is Lindsay's. Um, how do the two of them relate? What pulls them together and pushes them apart? Well, I think Vicky and Lindsay basically became friends because their parents pushed them together from from kindergarten days. The parents both come from the same upper social class and obviously are keen for their daughters to have friends only from that same echelon. So oh, their mothers too are good friends and so it seems only natural that their daughters would also be friends. So essentially, apart from their age and similar interests, that's what pulls them together. But when circumstances take a turn for the worse for Lindsay, she realises she can't count on the support of her friend and as she, well, she no longer exists in the same social situation as Vicky and this is what drives the girls apart in the end. Now, as you indicated, Lindsay's parents are, to put it mildly, not a happy couple. Um, they're not very good parents either by most people's <laughs> standards, except in financial terms. They're good at that. What can you tell us about them as individuals and as a couple? And how does their behavior with each other and with Lindsay affect her? Well, her father is an abusive man. He, he's a bully. He bullies his wife and his daughter. Uh, we do find out why he's probably like this um, due to his own childhood towards the end of the story. But he's also created this image of the upright community and family man to the outside world. And they have no idea who the real Gordon Townsend is. Uh, due to his treatment of his wife, Lindsay's mother, she, uh, she's pretty much a slave to him. 
she's lost all her self-confidence and her very identity. And consequently, she's not strong and she's not a good, loving role model for her daughter. Uh, it really doesn't um, put... She really cannot help her daughter at all. She's just trying to keep the peace, trying to avoid her upsetting her husband, you know, the usual scenario with, with uh, abused wives. They're just trying to keep the peace and trying not to upset the abuser. On that first day at the beach, Lindsay borrows, in quotation marks, Mr. Hallowell's Rolling Stones t-shirt. Why did she do that? And what is the short-term result? Well, I don't think she really knows why she steals it from his pile of things on the sand at the beach. It's probably an impulsive decision just to get closer to him or to have something that belongs to him, to have a connection with him. She firmly believes that John Halliwell fancies her as she fancies him. And by taking the T-shirt, she creates, probably subconsciously at first, an excuse to see him, to return the T-shirt. Or maybe not, or maybe just to keep it as a memento of him. So really it serves as a, a way of um, trying to meet him face to face and maybe advance some kind of relationship. It's a, it's a good excuse. So she's impulsive, which for a 15-year-old is absolutely unheard of. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been 15 at some I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> uh, given that this story is based on true events, how did you go about novelizing it? Well, of course, I created fictional characters um, that hopefully, or who hopefully cover the very diverse range of young girls who were affected by this scandal. You know, it wasn't just the um, the poor uneducated. It was really, you know, all across all classes of uh, people. Um, I created a fictional home and hospital too though they were very largely based, based on real places, uh, places I worked at in, in years, a few years later as a nurse and a midwife, and places I spoke about to, to, to midwife and nursing colleagues who actually worked there during that time, and also uh, to mothers who'd given birth there. So I had a fairly good idea of what, what the places would have been like, um, I, I hope. <laughs> and what about Lindsay herself? How did you decide that that was the kind of personality who might get involved in this particular story? I think because she was vulnerable. She comes across, she's a leader, she's strong, intelligent, she's a bully, but she's underneath it. It's all a facade. She's just a vulnerable young girl who is searching for for love and she's a rebel. So something, she's kind of an accident waiting to happen. Uh, you know, the, this kind of thing you know, is likely to happen to her because of the times and um, because of her rebellious attitude due to her unhappy home life. I think uh, that's, you know, basically her in a nutshell. 
And what about your writing process? I mean, how, in this story, for example, you got the initial idea and then you started working on it. How do you go about, are you a plotter? Are you a pantser, as some of my guests claim to be? How do you make a story? Well, basically, the, the, the idea comes, the one I told you about, about hearing about the scandal, and I felt I had to write about it. And then, um, so I think I created the situation and then thought about what sort of characters were needed for this type of story. And I kind of always look on writing a book as building a house, you know, building up the walls, laying down the foundations, the basic idea, building up the walls, the structure of the story. And then once I've got that empty house, you know, the first draft, then I'll, you know, once I have some feedback, obviously, from beta readers to fill in the details and um, decorate the house, so to speak, put the curtains up and uh, get some furniture in and make it nice and how I want it. But as you know, it's a, you know, a long process and it goes through many, many versions before the final one, <laughs> at least 10, probably 15. And, uh, you know, I'm just adding to it all the time and trying to make it better as I, I think of, as I think of new things that need to be in it or things to take out. And I, so I kind of know the, the basic storyline before I start, but it definitely changes as I go along, as you probably know yourself that nothing uh, is nothing set in stone. I'm open to changes, and it will change because something will happen that that you know will make you have to change the storyline, and um, and then hopefully uh, you know because so it's not nothing is clearly mapped out. Definitely not at the beginning. It's just more like a vague idea that um, a beginning and an end, and then fill in the bits as you go. <laughs> Are you more comfortable with plot or with character? I think with character. I love I love making up characters. Um, plots, I'd say, probably are my weakest point because um, I care more about the characters, I think. Definitely I enjoy writing about people and portraying and developing characters more than an actual storyline. So that's definitely secondary. But, of course, you need both. So I have to deal with that. <laughs> so as terrifying as it is to think, for those of us who lived through 1969, it's now officially historical fiction. It's 50 years yes, in the past. I know. <laughs> <laughs> did you have to research this topic? And if so, how did you go about it? Well, yes, I definitely had to research it. Um, I've yet to write a book that didn't require any research. Uh, I drew up mainly on personal stories, uh, stories from friends and colleagues and people I met uh, through my research, as well as one of the women's thesis on this subject. Uh, and also there are many online documents with helpful information and TV documentaries, especially the Australian, you know, kind of current affairs programs, they put out a lot of, quite a few documentaries about the about the scandal when it all came to light. 
Uh, but all of the links, I've noted them in the author notes at the back of the, the Swooping Magpie, at the back of the book, all of the links that I, I used. One of the things that impressed me was that your characters really, do, the, the teenage characters really do sound like teenagers from the time. Oh, that's good. <laughs> did you recreate all that from memory or did you have to look that up too? And if so, where would you find it? Oh gosh, yeah, a bit from memory, but then I wasn't sure if, you know, I had to check. I did check widely with um, all my friends I went to school with, you know, what did we say, how did we speak? Uh, what kind of jargon and slang did we use? Um, you know, there's also uh, a, a few Facebook groups that are helpful with that kind of thing. Um, I also read widely both fact and fiction about that era uh, to to get a bit more with the lingo. And I watched films and documentaries too, and you can kind of build up a uh, a lexic, a vocabulary of um, of those times, and you know, I mean, there's just so much uh, in, information now online about you know things that people ate and drank then, and so I'd look up all that just to check uh, that my memory wasn't failing me, and remember things we played with, like yo-yos and what kind of bicycles we had, and and what we ate, and you know what kind of food was fashionable then and all, all those kinds of things. But you can find it fairly easily, I think, uh, online these days. And also, you know, it was quite fun checking with my friends uh, all of the all of the dialogue and, and things. That, that was good. <laughs> they laughed. <laughs> I'm sure they did. It's very nostalgic. <laughs> Are there any elements of the novel that I haven't asked you about that you... Um, would like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered it fairly well. Uh, I can't think of anything, um, anything really. Well, hopefully, it has, it has a, it can't really have a happy, happy ending. That kind of a story, but hopefully, it's a satisfying ending and it um, reaches uh, not not conclusions, but it kind of brings closure some kind of closure to their victims, the people who are affected. Uh, I think with something like this, you can't really hope for any anything more. So I needed to have a, a positive and hopeful ending without, you know, happily ever after because it can't be that. It couldn't ever be that. I think that's about, about all I can think of, Carolyn. What would you like readers to take away? Well, firstly, an entertaining read, I hope. And the fact that such scandals did happen and need to be exposed and the victims acknowledged. That's, that's the main thing. But basically, you know, it's entertainment. And, um, you know, I don't set out to teach people any lessons, but if they can learn from this, as I did doing my research, I think that can only be a good thing as well. What are you working on now? Well, the third novel in this Australian 70s series, which deals with yet another scandal. <laughs> this time it involves the, the United Kingdom and Australia in the mid-20th century, um, and it revolves around the child migrant program, which was another terrible thing in our, in our history. So uh, it's 
Only in the very early stages, though. It, again, very character-driven, and the, the story is just the backdrop for how these characters fare because of their, their circumstances and their awful situation. Where, where did that idea come from? Well, I, oh, I, I already had this idea when, uh, before when I was writing The, the Swooping Magpie. I was tossing up between the two. And in the end, I decided on the Swooping Magpie story. I don't know why. It just, and so I kind of put this idea on the back burner, but I already had research books and, and some ideas in my head. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll do that for the next one. It just kind of fit, fits in with the themes of the other two books in the Australian 70s trilogy. So I thought it would be a, it's a good way to kind of uh, finish it off and treat another similar kind of problem in our Australian history. And you've been referring to this all along as a trilogy. So you really expect to do just one more book and then stop and do something else? I think I will, yes. I think by then I will definitely need a break uh, from this period again and, and uh, the Australian setting. And I kind of have a, an idea for a series of mystery books set back in France. I think I'll probably go back to France for, uh, for the next series, which um, I'm not sure if they're going to be historical yet, but um, they'll probably take place in the same village as the French historical trilogy that I, I wrote first. But, um, you know, the same family. It'll be a very village family orientated series I hope to carry through with this, you know, similar um, kind of situation, the same characters and the same village throughout the whole series but that you know that's only just really vague notions at the moment i'll i'll finish this one first <laughs> well i wish you all success with that whether it's historical or not and thanks so much for spending your time with us today and um, thanks so much for having me carolyn it was lovely talking to you again and thank you for listening to our podcast once again i'm cp leslie the host of new books in historical fiction a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Lisa Perrat about The Swooping Magpie. Find out more about her at www.lisaperrat.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I also upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.